But yeah, we have all these weird images. God's telling prophets to eat poop and marry prostitutes and revelation swords are coming out of people's mouths and creatures have eyes all over their bodies. And like to me, it is always a little strange when church people push back a little bit on imagery because I'm like, don't you guys realize like this is part of the game? Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to The Dismantle, a show for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. Thanks so much for listening. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a dialogue with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we won't always agree, and that's okay, but we won't argue because our goal is to gain understanding and perspective by sharing our views in a way that builds bridges but not barriers. Our guest today is John Mark McMillan. John Mark is a songwriter from Charlotte, North Carolina. If his name isn't familiar, his songs certainly are, with hits like King of My Heart, How He Loves, and Wilder Love. John Mark, welcome to The Dismantle. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your show. I'm excited that you said yes, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. So before we dive into that, can you tell us how you got introduced to church, to faith? What's some of your background with spiritual stuff? Yep. So my parents both came to faith in the Jesus movement of the 60s, and my dad has been some sort of pastor my entire life. So I grew up in church meetings, conferences, and revivals, and um, I was inundated with church throughout most of my early life. So um, faith has always been, kind of always been there. Would you say that there's been a journey from where you started to where you are now? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And I think it always is. I, you know, like, and even if you look um, at the great people of faith, even in scripture, they all kind of take a trip, right? So I have a good friend that I've had this conversation with, you know, um, about this sort of idea that everyone takes a trip. My parents didn't continue sort of in their sort of streamer brand of faith. You know, they sort of migrated to another brand of faith, and I'm still very much in relationship with them. Uh, but sort of my faith has migrated as well, you know, and um, and I, I've often found it interesting that some people expect you to like, you know, if I believed everything I believed when I was 12 about anything, you know, there'd be something wrong. And so like as a kid, as an early adult, I sort of come to faith and then like some people expect you to stay that way your entire life. It just seems really weird. It would seem like something is wrong if I didn't change. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, it's definitely been a journey and it's a journey every day. That's awesome. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. So today on the show, we are discussing imagery and the idea behind imagery within art. Uh, John Mark, can you recall some of the first imagery you've ever experienced, whether that was within the walls of the church or within art culture as a whole? Yeah, I think one story I remember, because, um, you know, imagery is everywhere all the time, but I think one moment that sticks with me um, from early in life was driving back from the beach with my parents. Um, it's four hours to the beach. It's something we do every year and it's miserable, the drive, but you know, we all look forward to the beach. So driving to the beach, everyone's hyped, right? Because you're going there, but going home is terrible. You know, it's four hours in a hot car with four kids. I remember times the AC was not working and I was always in the very back of the station wagon. So the air didn't reach me anyway. Right. 
Um, so it was miserable. And I, I've got three kids too. So I, I can imagine my parents, <laughs> you know, their sort of exasperation and desperation. You know, they, they stick a tape in the car. And I remember lit one trip home listening to uh, the Stand By Me soundtrack, the soundtrack from original motion picture, you know, about the kids in the 60s, I guess. And, um, you know, there were songs like um, Buddy Holly's Every Day and Let the Good Times Roll. And, um, of course, Benny King's, you know, epic Stand By Me, you know. And that song has... Um, stuck with me for a long time. I remember, <laughs> you know, because you have one tape in the car, you listen to it over and over, right? And so we listened to these songs, I can't remember how many times on the drive home from the beach, but that, and that song always stuck with me, and the imagery there is pretty vivid, you know? If the sky we look upon should tumble and fall, or the mountains crumble into the sea, and that's pretty epic, you know? I think, too, like the 90s, was, you know, when I started writing music and listening to bands, like the Counting Crows and Pearl Jam, like the 90s is so full of melodramatic stream of consciousness imagery. So I think, you know, early on, I, I, I mimicked what I heard. And, um, you know, there's just, you know, like step out the front door like a ghost into the fog where no one notices the contrast is white on white, you know, or the smell of hospitals in winter and the feeling that's all a lot of oysters and no pearls. That's the kind of stuff I was listening to. And so I just sort of mimicked that when I started writing songs, you know. Now, some imagery is for the masses, meaning many people can grasp onto it. Uh, one of the most recognizable images in music could be Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire or Joni Mitchell's River. You know, we make the connection to the point fairly easily. But other images are harder to decipher. Like, I still don't know what Prince's Purple Rain is about. <laughs> Good luck with Champagne Supernova from Oasis. And who knows what the Beatles' I Am the Walrus is about. What place do you think imagery has within music and, and maybe more broadly art as a whole? Totally. So the way I see it, it's all about context. You know, I think most writers, at least good writers, are chasing their muses and only kind of figure out later on how to connect their work to an audience. You know, um, Champagne Supernova worked in the 90s because it was really cool to be ambiguous. You know, um, like I don't know what in the world a teen spirit smells like you know what i mean uh, but there is something to the sound of a word and i think for me I, I start to think about what a word is you know and the functions of a word and a way a word functions you know we sort of have kind of decided that um words ha have a specific meaning and i think we forget that words evolved like we didn't have the english language a couple thousand years ago like it did not exist it evolved from other languages, right? And so, like, essentially, words are sounds you make with your mouth that someone has some sort of context for, right? I mean, this sounds super elementary, but we don't think about this very often, right? And so a word can have a meaning based on your experience with the word, you know? So that experience can be the first time you heard the word or the way the word was used in your childhood or the way the word sounds. Like champagne supernova sounds like something I want to be involved in. I don't know what it is. And that's probably the point. It probably doesn't have a meaning outside of like, I know what how champagne makes me feel and I know what a supernova, you know, is. And so it's sort of like this explosion of, you know, of something that is um over the top or um you know you think about the lifestyle of the members of oasis you know 
their lifestyle was definitely a champagne supernova. It was an explosion of everything they could um, enjoy <laughs> in life for better or worse, right? So I don't know that, that what that means, you know, but I know how it makes me feel. And so I think there's imagery that points to uh, a more cognitive meaning, if that's the right word. And then there's imagery that pulls on, you know, a deeper place that pulls on uh, the way you feel about something, you know. And so, uh, and so, you know, and sometimes you you write, and um, I'm I'm always looking for that feeling. And then the the beauty is when I hit that feeling, and I I begin to look at the words, and they start to make some sort of sense, right? It's difficult to say what's going to be broad and what's not going to be broad until you kind of jump in and start writing the song. And then you're like, man, no one's going to get this. You know what I mean? <laughs> or you're like, ah, this is interesting. And there's sometimes like there's something mysterious about it that it's like it's kind of nice to put it out there like breadcrumbs to see if people will follow you down the path, right? Now, there's imagery within the church as well. Some low-hanging fruit like the cross, a dove, the bread and wine. Do you think that the church and the religious institutions struggle with imagery and artistic depictions of the truths that we hold in the faith? Well, I would say I would say it this way more. I think the church likes familiar imagery, you know, because these images that you brought up like only seem easy to you and me because maybe we grew up or spent a lot of time in church. But these images are actually not easy, you know, like a dead guy hanging with nails, you know, and branches around his head, you know. And you walk in a church and that guy is on the wall, you know, uh, bread as body and wine as blood. The dove is a spirit. What's a spirit and why is the dove a spirit? Why, do, you know, like these are actually pretty tough if you don't have any context for them. From the beginning, I saw this as kind of a license to be as weird as I wanted. And so, you know, to me, nothing about a kiss is ever as gross as a bleeding man nailed to the wall. Right. And so I think. I don't, I'm not, I don't know that it's the church struggles with imagery as much as I think they, they have a hard time with the unfamiliar, you know? And then once again, like, there are so many different streams of church, so it's really hard to make one blanket statement about church in general. But yeah, we have all these weird images in church. Fire images, water images, baptism, you know? I mean, the Old Testament, God's telling prophets to eat poop and marry prostitutes and revelation swords are coming out of people's mouths and creatures have eyes all over their bodies and inside their bodies and you know and so like to me it is always a little strange when church people push back a little bit on imagery because i'm like don't you guys realize like this is part of the game right like this is like in our dna you know as believers this is this weird imagery you know that um has been used for thousands of years to communicate um, the mysteries of faith. Yeah, it's really interesting. And my mind's probably going to be going on that for the rest of the day, that it's not uncommon because we're so familiar with it. But if you take that away, this is some weird stuff. I know. I wouldn't take most of my kids to a movie where a man was nailed to a wall. You know what I mean? A naked man and, uh, you know, <laughs> stabbed and beaten, you know, but <laughs> I'll take them to church and that guy's on the wall. You know, like this imagery is part of our, um, you know, uh, history, you know, and we sort of don't realize how um, aggressive it is, I think, most of the time. 
Now, yourself as a songwriter are probably one of the most active, in my opinion, uh, artists seeking out new and fresh ways to use imagery within your music. I mean, for example, your song, How He Loves, loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. Uh, King of my heart has be the wind in my sails, the anchor in the waves, the fire in my veins, the echo of my days. Uh, first song I ever heard from you, Carbon Ribs. I'm a dead man now with a ghost who lives within the confines of these carbon ribs. These are beautifully illustrative words that call to mind more than simply Jesus loves me, which there's nothing wrong with, but it's it's very elementary. What's some of the driving force behind some of the lyrical content that you compose? Uh, mostly, I think I'm chasing the muse. You know, I'm looking for images and words that spark some kind of emotion most of the time. And usually this means it has to hit me from a different angle to make me care, you know, um, like I'm looking for a window into a world that kind of draws me into a conversation and hopefully draws a listener into a conversation, you know, like facts can be really, really boring, you know, like facts can be boring. Like I'm not really interested in singing facts. I actually think that music, maybe art as a whole, you know, the medium is really emotion. And like, I, I do get some pushback where people are like, there's too much emotionalism, we just need better theology. But I actually don't think good theology is gonna fix uh, bad worship songs. I, I think that people are, um, uh, people think the problem with worship is theology, and I actually disagree. Because I don't really care about the theology until I believe what you're saying, right? You know, if you're an artist, I need to believe you. I need a window into your world or, or what or your facts literally mean nothing to me, you know. And so for me, like I'm constantly looking for um, anything that's going to push a button, anything that's going to awake kind of a deeper sense of meaning inside of a person, you know, uh, because like, you know, words are really just sort of the sheen on top of meaning. You know, the word isn't the meaning, it's sort of the articulation or the, you know, the surface of meaning, but re actual meaning is a lot deeper. You know, for instance, um, you know, when you have a word on the tip of your tongue, you have a word on the tip of your tongue, it's like the meaning exists. Like the fact that you can't articulate it in the moment for whatever reason doesn't take away from the meaning. It makes it a little bit hard to express the meaning, but the meaning itself is something so much deeper than the word, you know, the, the word is just sort of the tip of the spear. You know, and so like I'm always pushing at that. I'm always trying to push into that thing on the other side of the word. And so sometimes that means approaching it from a different angle. You know, like Malcolm Gladwell says that the reason a metaphor works is because it's different from the subject. It works in the areas that it's not like the thing you're um, comparing it to. Like if I say uh, a Cabernet tastes like a Shiraz, nobody cares, right? But if I say a Cabernet tastes like flowers and chocolate, then then you're like, okay, right? Because like if you compare apples, and Malcolm Gladwell uses this, he's like, if I say, you know, Granny Smith apples taste like red delicious apples, like once again, like that doesn't mean anything, you know? But if I say like, you know, this kind of apple kind of tastes a little bit like an orange on the back end, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it's where it's different that like actually um, matters, that makes the metaphor work. You know, so for me, I'm always pushing into those metaphors to see how different can I get with a metaphor. It's not even a challenge to be as different, but I'm always looking for these metaphors that connect to the listener in a totally different way than anything they've heard before. 
not to be cool or new, but simply because like we we get tired of phrases with overuse and things stop meaning things. You know, like I talked to my, I mean, my grandparents have all passed away at this point, but there are words they use that were a lot stronger to them than the words we use now. Like, and I remember my kids will say a word, like for instance, like my kids will say sucks, right? And like, to me, it's not a big deal. To them, it means nothing. To my parents, you know, and my grandparents, this is like a really harsh word to use. You know, you see it all the time when you watch old movies and they get really mad and they say something like, you know, you moron, you know, and like, but really they mean more like what we say today, but it's because words with over, over time, they lose their meaning and you have to bring new words in to, to touch that, that meaning again, you know? So I guess, I mean, uh, the dri- I guess if that's the driving force behind, you know, my lyrical content is really to like put my finger on meaning in a way that uh, makes you care. Now, one of the best examples of this, and one I'm sure you're thoroughly through talking about, uh, is the phrase sloppy wet kiss. That, of course, being from your song, How He Loves, which I think is funny because you've you've made it pretty clear that the song was not written for the church to be a worship tune. But have you gotten any more pushback for being a little bit more illustrative with your lyrical content? Well, I, what's funny is I, I, I didn't see the whole like sloppy wet kiss controversy coming at all. You know, and it really wasn't so much for me as it was to other artists that sort of like live in the mainstream evangelical world, because I don't really, you know, um, I touch on that and I'm in and out of that, but I don't really live there. And I I thought it was funny. I was like, for real? Like, that's a problem. And like, I thought they'd have much more of a problem with like hurricanes and trees. Like, that's weird. You know, like, to be honest, it's a super heavy song, like heavy. It's about my friend passing away and his maybe what his experience might be like moving from, you know, the mortal world to the afterlife. And so like Sloppy Wet Kiss was a way for me to lighten it up, you know, um, more than anything. So I've always thought that was kind of hilarious, you know. But what's interesting about that line is it's made the song go a lot further. Like it's frustrating and I hate hearing about it. And when people do like a Sloppy Wet Kiss joke, I'm like, come on, man, this is like an 18 year old song. Like. I haven't thought or cared about that in a good decade and a half, you know, but to pe- to some people in certain areas, I guess it's still like, you know, <laughs> a thing, you know, but, but what's interesting is that controversy has given the song wings, <laughs> you know, beyond maybe that it would have without it. So I think for me, it was more of an encouragement to like continue to push the boundaries, even though I never felt like I was pushing any sort of boundaries or buttons when I wrote that particular line. But, you know, I guess it, it's encouraged me. I did put a pagan god on the last album cover um, for Mercury and Lightning, and I got no pushback. So I was like, well, I guess I'm <laughs> I guess I'm free now. <laughs> I kept waiting for it and hoping for it, and it just never came. You know, you just never know what's going to offend people. It's always a surprise for me. Now, do you think we're missing something by being so cut and dry in our expression and our our lyrical content that lacks imagery and vibrance? You think we're missing something when there's not a lot of work to do in our lyrical diet? Um, well, 
I'd say in certain streams, yes. And once again, I think it's important to note that the global church is huge, like billions of people, right? I mean, it's huge. So I'm always careful about making those big statements again. But, you know, for instance, uh, most Catholic masses, for example, are dripping with images. You know, the ancient church is full of ritual and liturgy and you know so like there's still a lot of that that's very much alive and vibrant but yeah i'd say in certain streams um you know <laughs> in certain streams can get a little bland you know um and I, I guess at some point you know i feel like we in certain areas maybe in more the like modern american evangelical world we sort of turn the gospel into cold information you know lists and rules and you know, worship can feel that way, like checking off boxes, you know. Um, but for me, like, I need songs to live with. I need songs that at least give me a reason to care about the stupid list or even subvert the list altogether and lead me to that deeper meaning I was talking about, you know, like the meta beneath the information. Educational songs are good to help you remember your ABCs, but I don't want to dance to that at my wedding or have it played at my funeral, you know. Like, I need something that's going to help me actually metabolize some meaning. And to me, that almost always means creating metaphors around things that are just too big to get my head around. So I, I do think that um, we could use a good dose of, um, you know, spice and salt. <laughs> you know, we could use a dose of uh, something new and different and exciting, I think. It would do us some good. And John, Mark, I've really been enjoying our conversation, but as we bring our time to a close, I do agree with you that the church is massive and what applies in one corner of the church does not necessarily reflect the other, but maybe just a broad scope of something you're observing. What's something that you think the church could do to move in a more positive direction? It could be on the topics we were discussing or maybe just something you're observing. Sure, totally. I would say... I mean, you know, once again, the church is so huge, but, you know, two portions of the church, I'd say, please don't stay in your lane. You know, the maker created this robust life experience, you know, like this ball of yarn that you will never fully untangle, right? Teeming with colors and sounds and shapes and textures and smells, you know, uh, and like, why not use it all? Why leave anything on the table? Life is not safe. God is not safe. Love is not safe. Nothing good is safe. So don't be safe if you can help it. You know, I think, you know, that people mean well, but um, I think I'd like, I'd like to see faith-based work be less coercive. You know, to me, coercive art is rarely believable. Um, you know, and I, I would say like, stop, try, stop trying to win me, you know, if, if I don't believe you, then I don't care about your information. You know, if I don't believe you, then your theology is 100% irrelevant to my experience, right? So I think we need to worry less about, you know, the theology and a little more about why, you know, on a gut level. Like, why do you care about what you're singing about? Why do you care about what you're creating? You know, not why do I need to listen to you so that I can you know, be one over to a club or a team or a conversation, but like, why do you care? Because if I, if I see that you care and I know why you care, then all of a sudden I care. And then you kind of win me, you know what I mean? And so that would be maybe what I would say. Maybe that's a little too harsh, <laughs> but uh, it's nothing I don't try my best to apply to myself and my own work. You know, um, it's not easy. It's really not easy, 
But uh, as my dad always said, if it was easy, someone else would already be doing it and you wouldn't have the opportunity. That's awesome, man. And th thanks so much for being on the show. I've really enjoyed our conversation. If people wanted to follow up with you and check out your music, how could they do that? Yes, I have a website, johnmarkmcmillan.com, and I'm on all the social platforms, Instagram and Twitter and um, Spotify. Um, and so you can, Apple Music, all of those places, you can connect to me there um i should be touring and play some dates this year next year probably doing a much bigger tour and so i'd also i'd love to meet any of you as we're out on the road doing that kind of stuff as well so thanks for the conversation this was fun i agree man thank you so much and that wraps up this episode of the dismantle until next time don't complain about the things you're not willing to change you've been listening to the dismantle creating community not conflicts Visit us at dismantlepod.com.